from 4 to 6. We had our mid-year family meeting. It was providentially arranged. Um, we had planned it. That was just to get your attention, really. That's what I, they did that on purpose. Um, so anyway, no. They, um, so we, uh, it was providentially arranged. We had arranged it ahead of time in January, not knowing where we would be with the building, but thinking that, you know what, we had some other things we wanted to share, but God in His wisdom had planned it that way. So um, we have been looking at a facility, a more permanent facility for the last several months, um, walking through, taking a look at it, getting many inspections done, kind of doing all of our due diligence ahead of time. And then last Sunday, we um, proposed that, among other things, um, pointing out where God is at work and um, where He's been at work in our church and where we are confident He will be at work in our church. Let's wait for a second. There we go. Perfect. Um, you know, it's funny. This morning, uh, so glad to hear Alan and Ruth, their testimony. They have been friends for many years. Um, and he said two things brought him here. The gospel and community, and isn't that funny because that's really what the vision is that God has given to us as a church, is to be gospel-centered in our community, in our worship, and in our mission. And so our vision for who God has called us to be is the exact thing that drew the Ballards here. And so it's neat to see how God does that and joins people together. So we're excited to have them as well as God bringing others to our church like the Newmans last week at the family meeting, we introduced them. Um, well, I wanted to give you the results of our affirmation process. We asked for affirmation from all of the members. We, we basically said, do you affirm purchasing the facility at Abundant Life Church? And you can go ahead and clap. It's... I want to tell you what you're clapping for. The, the left-hand bigger column is the yes, by the way. In case you're wondering, uh, the bigger column is the yes of... Those people who are 18 and up, and I apologize to those who are under 18. We figured since it was a financial decision, we wanted those who are at least legally financially responsible. So from 18 and up members, and we had about 160, I believe 158 actually, 158 members that it was sent out to 18 and up, and that does include attenders, but that's permanent members, and um, about 83% participated in that survey, which, by the way, is the highest we've ever had for any of the other affirmations we've done. Um, so that was, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And by the way, that's, that's very high for any church in general. Um, anytime you can get above 65% or 70% participation, that's good. We had 83% participate. Of that 83% that participated, we had 94.66 affirm the decision to put a bid in to purchase Abundant Life Church. Now, having said that, um, we are in the process of putting in a bid. We worked on that on Friday um, when we had the results come in, and um, hopefully in the next few days we will have the formal bid put forward. I'm not going to share the details of that with you because we want to propose that to the other church, and hopefully they'll accept that, and we don't want to kind of give away some negotiation there. So needless to say, though, we took into account some of the areas that we told you that need some work. Um, this is not a perfect building. This is a building we can afford. Um, so it, it needs some, some repairs and some updates and those types of things. So what we did in our bid process was we took into account the cost of those repairs and put a bid in with that in mind. And we hope that that will be acceptable to them. And so our first bid is um, a cash offer combined with an offer of our land. So um, you can be in prayer that God would give us favor and that um, 
he would be with us and give us wisdom and guide us in our negotiations with them as well. And that if it's the Lord's will, he would make that clear um, as we move forward. Now, because we've got affirmation, um, I believe this is the direction God has for it. And that seems overwhelming and clear. This is a direction to pursue. At the same time, pursuing doesn't mean that it's done. So you can pray that God continues to make his will made known through this whole process. So um, we're, we're going to do that this week. I will let you know uh, next week when we have put the offer in, what the offer we put in was. Um, I don't anticipate they'll have received it. In, well, I'm sorry, I don't anticipate they'll have accepted it by next Sunday. But hey, if they have, we'll let you know that too. So that's where things are right now. So if you can be in prayer for that. And in case you're wondering, the building is physically located on Highway 14, South Carolina 14. Um, it, it's right across from a cemetery, which I love actually, because it reminds you of the end of life when you go to church. And I think it's a good thing, actually. It reminds you of the final day. It reminds you of that day that we all will have. And so I think it's good, actually, to go by a cemetery. But it's right near Woodruff Road, so it's a high-traffic intersection. It's a good location. We're looking forward to seeing what God has there. Well, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 2. 1 Samuel 2. We'll be reading the first 10 verses of 1 Samuel 2 together. This is God's holy, inspired word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of of his anointed. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning, even prior to your holy word, the, the vision that we have of you, that we had of you this morning as, as our rock, as our, as our fortress, as our foundation, Lord, as our strong dwelling place, our place of refuge. Thank you, God, that you have already made clear by your spirit that you desire for us to look up, to behold you as our God, 
to see you as high and lifted up on the throne, God. And Lord, may our vision be filled with you. God, may we take our eyes off of our circumstances and ourselves. God, may we look up to you from whom our help comes. God, would you teach us to have your perspective? Would you teach us to to pray like Hannah has prayed with an awareness of who you are? God, would you increase our faith in you as we look up to behold you? Would you not only give us rest, but would you give us joy and faith and way we exalt in you as Hannah exalted in you? In your name we pray. Lord, I pray that you would be strong in the midst of my weakness and in the midst of the weakness of everyone here. God, we are frail. We are weak. We do not trust. I do not trust in myself. We don't trust in ourselves, God. But we look to you our rock. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first two chapters of Samuel present a really brief but a compelling portrait of Hannah. We saw in the first part, in in, in chapter one, Hannah's life really kind of framed up in these first two chapters. And like a portrait has a frame and definite contours, we've seen Hannah's life. It was it was framed on both ends by, by suffering. We see difficulty and suffering in the midst of a marriage. She was suffering in a difficult marriage, in difficult circumstances. And yet, when she got a perspective of who God is, God is the Lord of hosts. We saw in, in last week she prayed to God as the Lord of hosts. It changed her perspective. And she became aware of God. And now we see the other bookend, if you will, of Hannah's life, this, this frame of her life. This picture of her, and she is a woman who is keenly aware of God's power, of of God's presence, of God's redemption, of God's ability, and of what God will do. When you read great stories like the book of Samuel, which is full of many great tales of what God did in the lives of his people. When you read great stories like this, it's compelling, isn't it? You read the story of other great autobiographies. I read a story about one of the founding fathers, Adams, and by a guy named McCullough, and it was compelling. It made me question, okay, what am I living for? What kind of legacy am I living, leaving behind? I remember when I was a kid, I read other stories, Huckleberry Finn, all kinds of stories that affected me, the Scarlet Letter, the Old Man, the Sea, all quiet on the Western Front. They made me think about life and how to treat others and made me really consider what am I living for? What, what perspective do I have? And really that's the effect that Hannah's story, Hannah's prayer, or as it's called, Hannah's song, is meant to have on us. It's meant to make us step back and say, wait a minute, seeing how she lived and what she prayed about and what was important to her, how am I living? What frames my life? What's the portrait of me that someone might write? What will people remember? What frames my life? What defines my life? Where is my gaze? Where will people say that I primarily had hope in and what I was living for? So what frames your life? What defines your life? You know, our lives can include times of great joy and times of suffering. They can include times of bounty and loss, peace and pain, times of silence and times we just want to shout from the rooftops. We can have times of brokenness and times of healing and we can have times of love and hate and laughter and lament and there's a time to to go to war 
a time for peace. But what is it that sustains you and I through our lives? Are we sustained through our lives? Are you aware that you're sustained? Rather, are you aware of who sustains you through all the ups and downs of life? Because Hannah is a great portrait of someone who is sustained through the difficult times and then in the times of bounty and provision by her vision and her view of God, her awareness of who God is. So what defines, what frames our lives? What informs our lives? What are we aware of day by day? What are we more aware of? Who are we more aware of? You know, I think we can learn from this story of Hannah a framework of prayer. Um, I originally was going to take the whole chapter, and then as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, no, I I think we need to learn from Hannah because we need to see what does it look like to to pray, not just in our need, because I think we all can, can identify praying in our need when we feel low and distressed, but what does it look like to pray when we... When God provides, what informs our perspective in normal life when we don't have difficulties? And so I I think that, although it's not the only kind of prayer, there's some key contours of prayer that we see in this picture of Hannah. And the first contour of Hannah's prayer that that we need to learn from is is that she prayed and we pray with an awareness of God's personal salvation. She was praying with an awareness of God's personal salvation. And we need to learn that we should pray aware of God's personal salvation. In the brief sketches of Hannah, she's displayed a pattern of prayer. Not just of petition in the first chapter, but now of praise. And and as I read this prayer, I thought, I wonder how many times I do this. I wonder how many times when nothing is going wrong, when everything's going well, when God is providing, I wonder how many times my perspective, my awareness is on God. Or do I think that my strength comes from myself? The problem is, if we forget an awareness of where our strength comes from and the good times when the difficult times hit will be shaken. You know, Hannah is praying here when God has already answered her prayer. And I think if we're to pray with an awareness of how God has personally saved us and how God has personally provided for us and protected us and cared for us, then it would have an effect on our perspective. It would have an effect on our attitude. You know, generally, if we are aware of God's provision and protection and care and his salvation of us on a regular basis, and that was the regular content of our prayer, I think it would change our attitude, I think it would change our interactions with others, and I think it would change the effectiveness we have in the body of Christ. You know, too, too often we're focused on our personal preferences, even when things are going well. When things are not as we think they should be, or Hannah, and Hannah demonstrates an example of somebody who prays personally aware of God's salvation. She was, she was a woman who was once barren. She was scorned by her rival co-wife. She had, Peninnah had, had persecuted her for years. This went on year after year after year. Every time they went up to worship God, she was confronted with her lack and her barrenness. And year after year, she was grieved. So don't think, um, well, gee, Hannah got a quick answer to prayer. We don't know how many years it was before God answered Hannah's prayer in the way that she could see. Now I think all along God was answering her prayer and saying, wait. Because God was at work and God wanted to point Hannah to him so that she would see her need for him and look up. And often in difficult times and circumstances, like preceded this, God often brings those things or allows those things so that we look up and see him 
and so that we can be aware of his personal salvation of us. She turned in, in the first chapter to see the Lord of hosts and she says she was pouring out her very soul to God, trusting that God hears the cry of the barren and afflicted and we can trust that as well. She prayed that God would give her a son and she promised something odd that you think, wait a minute, she prayed for the son and then she promises to give the very thing she prayed for up to God as an offering, really. God heard her prayer we saw last week and gave her a son when he was weaned. She brought this toddler to serve God with the high priest Eli and, and yes, to some relief, I bet her prayers were, were based on the fact that she wanted relief from Panetta. At the same time, she was persecuted whenever she went to worship God, and so I think part of what was motivating her, and we can see in this prayer, was the fact that she wanted to see God's name vindicated because she worshiped God. Instead of Peninnah worshiping God, she was persecuting Hannah. So yeah, to some degree, she must have desired relief from persecution and suffering, and it is not wrong to desire that, by the way, or to pray that way. She must have desired that God would give a good gift, and it's not wrong to pray that God would give good gifts. And in fact, we should pray that God would give good gifts, and God is pleased to give good gifts at times. He doesn't always. So this isn't some kind of formulaic thing where if we pray a certain way or make a promise that God will give children to those who are barren, but it does let us know that God hears the cry of the barren. And we can see that She is vindicated in her prayers. And we see in her prayer of response that ultimately, from this prayer that we read a few minutes ago, the desires of her heart were ultimately Godward. She was, if if you notice in the prayer, she didn't pray like I might be prone to pray if I had for years, we had been wanting a child and for years we prayed as many in the church have experienced and might still be experiencing if, if I prayed for years that God would bring a child, I might, the first thing I might pray is, hey God, thanks so much for this child. What an answer to prayer. We'll rejoice in the son. Oh, that's so great. And there's nothing wrong with that. But notice she doesn't do that. We have a kind of surprising prayer here. She makes allusion to it, but that's not her primary focus. She was primarily aware that the gift that God had given pointed to the giver of the gift, to God himself. That the gift that God had given was a sign or a symbol of the one who gave it to her. There's a commentator named Adele Davis, and he, he writes that it's kind of like a wedding ring given to a bride is a symbol of the love she's received, but it, it is not, in fact, the love itself in one sense. It's a symbol of that. It's a token of that affection. And, and Hannah could look beyond that and, and look to God and see that he was the one in whom her affections belonged. And so we see her look up immediately from God's provision. And so we can see a little bit of her motives were Godward. Hannah begins her prayer with all that she is. It's a very personal prayer. Um, Look down your Bibles for just a minute. She begins her prayer with all that she is. If you remember last week, Eli, her, I mean, Elkanah, her husband, had asked her, he says, why is your heart sad? Well, now, in contrast, Hannah declares, she says, at the very beginning, my heart does what? It's not sad. My heart exalts. And she doesn't exalt in her child. She exalts in the Lord. It's a very personal prayer of her salvation from God. Her heart exalts in the Lord. She says, my heart, my strength, my mouth, I rejoice. 
She was aware of what God had done and was doing. She was aware how God had opened up her mouth and had given her gladness. And she was aware of God, how God had made her rejoice. Where the ESV actually records Hannah saying, My strength is exalted in the Lord. And that's, that's the meaning of the original language. So the ESP kind of has the meaning there, right? But it misses a little something. There's a, there's a colloquialism that Hannah actually said in the Hebrew, and it, and it, it really kind of loses its meaning in the English, but it bears explaining because um, she says this same sentence at the beginning of the prayer, at the end of the prayer. In verse 1, she says, Instead of my strength is exalted in the Lord, the, the literal phrase is, My horn is exalted in the Lord. And then at the end of verse 10, she talks about God exalting the horn of his anointed. Why does she use that colloquialism? Well, in, in those days, the, the horns or the antlers of an animal were, were seen as what gave strength and dignity. And, and the word for, for strength and dignity is, is translated here, power. So she ends up saying, you know, God will exalt the horn of his anointed, both at the beginning of her, she says, God exalts my horn at the end, God exalts the horn of the anointed, and I don't know if you remember watching the old classic Disney movie, Bambi. I remember the first time I saw that as a kid and then with my children as well. Besides the fact of, that it's anti-hunting, I, I just disregard that now. But, um, but I, I love, there's a moment where, you know, Bambi's dad, he kind of comes in and he's got his chest all puffed out and he walks into the forest and he's holding his head high and he's got this huge antlers, his horns, if you will. They're not really horns, but antlers, are held high and they're magnificent and there's dignity and there's strength. You can just feel the power of his, his huge antlers. And that's really the kind, of, the kind of picture that she's wanting to convey. She says, my horn, my, my head is lifted up, my strength has been exalted in the Lord. He has given me dignity. And then at the end, she has a prophetic voice and says, God will exalt the the horn will lift up the dignity and strength of his anointed. So what frames her prayer is that God is the one who lifts up, who gives strength, who gives dignity. Dignity is not found in herself. It's not found in children. It's found in the Lord. Strength is not found in herself. It's found in the Lord. God is the one who lifts up. Maybe this morning you're feeling, if, as the words that we received of encouragement some may be feeling weak. Look up to the Lord from whom comes our strength. Some are feeling weary. He gives us encouragement. And she doesn't say, God, I'm excited to have a son, and that's good. But she says, God, you have given me a good gift, and, and she, I behold your nature and your character. And so she begins to extol the very nature and character of God. And ultimately, Hannah's not rejoicing because of the son. She sees that God is her personal salvation, her satisfaction, the one who saves her, and she rejoices in him. And so she declares in verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. She has realized that the most important person is not Peninnah, it's not Elkanah, it's not the high priest, it is God, and there is no one like him, that he is the one who matters. He is holy. And what does that mean? Because, Because God is holy, he's morally perfect and pure, he's not motivated like we are. Why is that good news? Why do we need to see that when we pray? 
Well, we need to see because sometimes our hearts are tempted to feel as if God has unholy motives, as if, as if he is angry or punishing or vindictive. And so she doesn't pray that way. She says, no, there is none holy like God. We need to be aware of that as we pray, as we approach God. We need to adjust our thoughts. God is not vindictive. He does not punish his children. Yes, he, he brings correction, but it's formative for our good. It's discipline because he loves us, but he is holy. He's morally pure. There's, there's no corruption in him. He always does what's pure and right and good. And so in relationship with him, we can trust him because he is holy. Hannah had to wait many years until she saw God answer her prayers, but God was holy in his delaying, and she saw that. Saw that God is holy. You're holy and you're delaying. And she's also seeing that God is holy in his granting. His motives are pure in both cases. God may not choose to grant our prayers in the way that we want or in the timing that we want, but we can trust that he's not capricious if he delays or says no. Because he's holy. There's no one besides him. We can take comfort that God will answer our prayers in the way and the time that he chooses. In his, in his holiness, he, he's motivated rightly towards us. Yahweh, she says, is in a class all on his own. There's no one else who matters like God. He's the preeminent one. She sees that, wait a minute, no one else's opinion matters. Ultimately, in the end, she decides to not be swayed by what Peninnah thinks of her, good or bad, or what her husband thinks of her, good or bad. Ultimately, she says, there's no one besides you. Sometimes our prayers, we can forget God and we can pray because people will loom bigger in our eyes. And then she says, there is no rock like our God. And boy, was that a theme in this morning's worship or what? And, and, and I, I love that God was leading Matt in that. We didn't talk about, hey, what am I going to preach? I, I just love how the Holy Spirit leads in those ways. God alone is a sure and steady rock. No one, what does that mean? No one else can be relied on like him, yet he can be relied on. He is a firm foundation. He will not be shaken. He is not moved. And that is what our real comfort in life is, that no matter what happens, he is our rock. Why is that important for us to be aware of that? Because circumstances change. We change. We're fickle. Our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our loved ones, they're fickle. They change. They fail. No one is steady. No one is stable. Not we ourselves, nor anyone we trust or love. And I don't mean that to be negative or pessimistic, but that's reality. But yet God is our rock. And may we be aware of that as we come to him in prayer. Moses had a similar declaration in Deuteronomy 32, 3. He says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, and he gives the name the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. It's a similar thing that Hannah's praying here. God's holy, there's no one like him, he's the rock. It's the same what Moses was praying. Wonder if she was meditating on God's word as she prayed that informed her view of God. In the New Testament, Peter kind of makes the same statement. He says, that, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone or a rock, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him, who is this him? The stone, the cornerstone, the foundation. He says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. 
But for those who do not believe, the stone of the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the honor is for us who believe. The honor is for us to have a sure foundation of God as the rock and that ultimate fulfillment in Jesus as the rock. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 10, it talks about how Moses led the people through the wilderness, through the desert, and it says they drank from the same spiritual rock that Moses struck, and that rock was Jesus, was Christ. The anointed one, by the way, that word Christ is anointed one. We'll come back to that later. Hannah serves as an example. She doesn't fall more in love with the gifts that God gives than God himself. May we not fall more in love with God's gifts than God May we have gratitude to God for who he is in all that he gives or withholds. Well, and this, it's this conviction that God is her rock like no other that, that Hannah transitions now. She boldly, boldly proclaims from, from not only a personal experience, she personally proclaims God's salvation and she does it in a way she confronts and she says, talk no more so very proudly. She sounds like Shakespeare here, doesn't she? Or Shakespeare maybe sounds like her. It's probably a better way of putting it. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The the New American Standard says, boast no more so very proudly. Don't Don't be so arrogant to think that God doesn't see and know all things. And don't forget that God is a God of knowledge. He sees and understands all things. Don't act like you have something to boast about, or don't act arrogantly as if you're smart on your own. And by the way, it's going to be a theme that we see repeated throughout, that we, along with many other themes. That's one of the key themes in Samuel. Not trusting your own strength. Don't act like you, you know things on your own. Don't be self-righteous. The Lord is a God of knowledge. Knowledge comes from Him, and He weighs all actions. He's the one who truly knows. He's the one who gives knowledge. He's the one who weighs your actions and the motives behind your actions, and He's the one who judges. Not only has God her salvation and holy and her rock, he's always trustworthy, always steady. He knows all things. What's revealed in her prayer is Hannah's character and the fact that she knows God. She knows God. Her character is revealed. She is seen that she looks up to God. She knows who God is. She doesn't just know of God, but she knows God personally and she, she praises him that way. She wasn't looking just to get something from God. She knew God and reveled in him. I was reading some comments on this from a guy just across town, actually, Richard Phillips. He's the minister over at Second Presbyterian. He made an insightful comment on Hannah, and we have it for you. He says, Hannah's relationship with her Lord is a reproof to those who are little interested in God. Do you come to church primarily to meet among, with, with God among his people? I hope you do, and I believe you do. Is your primary concern in a sermon is teaching about God rather than a supposed practical value for yourself? If not, you are little interested in God himself, but only in what you can get from God. Then your spiritual condition must be weak at best and perilous at worst. If we desire a faith that burns even in dark places and a character that honors God at all times, then let our faith be focused on the Lord himself, like Hannah, by the way. Seeking first the kingdom of God, whom to know is eternal life. 
Let our faith then be focused on the Lord himself. As Hannah's faith is focused not primarily on the gift, but on God who's the giver of gifts. And that gave her faith to see that God would be at work and a faith in God's power. And we see that transition. She was aware of her own personal salvation. And then we see the second contour of prayer in, in, in the picture of Hannah. And then we, we learn from is to pray aware of God's power. She was aware of God's power to bring the exalted things of this world down low and to lift up the lowly places of honor. And I think right now in our nation, we need to have faith to see that it's God who raises up and it's God who brings low. She said in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken. What does that mean? The source of of, of trust, that the mighty have trust in their weapons and, and, and what they have. And God breaks the bows of the mighty. He breaks what the mighty trust in. But then she says, but the feeble bind on strength. Those, picture the feeble, those somebody who's lame, who is, walks with a limp, binds on strength in God. She was aware of God's power to bring low and to exalt That's going to be a consistent theme throughout Samuel. We're going to see that all throughout. He makes the feeble, the weak, strong in him. And isn't that like what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 7? He says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elevated. Now, who gave that? God actually did. God made him weak. Now, why? He says, a messenger of Satan, so he, he, this, this God allows us. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that should leave me. But God, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content. Did you hear that? For the sake of Christ then, so that his name will be exalted, so he'll be shown to be powerful in our weakness. He says, for the sake of Christ's exaltation, the Christ being the anointed one. We're going to come to in verse 10. For the sake of the anointed one, then I am content with weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He wasn't a sucker for punishment. He knew that his true strength lied in God. Are we aware in our weakness that God is the one who makes us strong? Or maybe are we aware when we're strong, as Hannah was at this moment, that it was God who makes us strong? God acts sovereignly so that people won't trust themselves, but in his strength, not only that, um, he's the one who completely turns things around. Look in verse five, if you will. Look down your Bibles for a moment. Hannah declares that those who are full or satisfied in themselves, they're gonna have to work just for a basic meal of bread now. Those who are full, and that, that, that idea is those are fullness in themselves, they're gonna have to, to work just to eat. God's the one who completely turns things around, who reverses fortune. And at the same time, those who are hungry are satisfied in God. Then she poetically says, the barren is born seven children. Now she's not prophesying about how many children she will have. That's another colloquialism. It's another way of, of saying that even the barren will conceive perfectly or to a number of completeness. 
In contrast, without God, she who has many children is forlorn. And what does that word mean? It means to feel abandoned or lonely. So, humanly speaking, the woman with many children, now, this might refer to Peninnah, most likely, but she's speaking of the greater truths that it reveals. Those who have much in their own strength will be forlorn, feel lonely and abandoned without God. But at the same time, she speaks of how God sees the plight of the downcast, the lowly, the hungry, the barren, and he's able to satisfy all in himself. Are you hungry? You feeling barren? Are you needy? Are you downcast? Are you lowly? Look up and see God. He is able to satisfy all in himself. Not only that, in a world when it's easy to think that our lives or the lives of those we love are in the hands of others, it's easy to become fearful. Hannah proclaims something. Look in verse six. She says, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. And there's great comfort in these verses, especially in light of the there's recent videos that have been released on social media showing a, an organization named Planned Parenthood. They, they casually talk about brutally ending, killing the lives of babies violently and using their parts for profit. And we need to look up and see that ultimately it is God who holds life, that he is the one who is able to, to raise up and to bring to life anew. He's able to bring to life ultimately and raise all those babies who have been murdered to eternal life in him. God's the one in charge of life and death, not man. God brings down to Sheol, the grave, the realm of the dead, and he raises up from the realm of the dead from where no man can raise up. It's all in God's hands. Now, if God wasn't holy and good, that would be terrifying. But as Hannah's already prayed, he is our rock, he is holy, there's no one like him. We can trust him as our firm foundation. He has all knowledge. He has pure motives and wants what's best. He has all knowledge and knows what is best. He is our rock and he is steady. Deuteronomy 32, 39, Moses declared, see now that I, even I, am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now later, God also says that if God holds us in his hands, no one can snatch us from his hand. All those who place their faith or trust in God, God holds in his hand. If you have placed your trust in him, no one can snatch you from his hands. Psalm 30, David, he reflects back and he says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He too saw that God is the one who raises up from, from the depths, from the pit, that he, he is the one who holds the final authority of the world of the living and the dead. And that matters in a world where we're surrounded by death. And, you know, death can come from just the slightest thing, an accidental virus that we might contract. Everybody was afraid a few months back about Ebola. A virus like that can quickly kill. We can hit by a car. We can die from cancer or just old age. But we need to see that all, all of us only die when God says so. Not before, not after. God holds us. He's in, the one who's in control of our lives. And that gives us confidence that we can rest and trust in him, that, that he knows best. He has pure motives. We can rely on him. No one will be 
taking us out of his hand and his plans. Then when Hannah prays, she has the same confidence that she, she speaks of God, the same confidence really that, that Job had. In Job 19.25, Job says, For I know, now Job kind of spoke prophetically, he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. Though God planned for Jesus, his own son, to die for us and in our place, God proved that his sacrifice was acceptable and he had the power over life and death. He proved what Hannah was praying because not only did Jesus die, God raised him up from the pit. The same word we have here. So now, too, we can say with Hannah and with Job, no matter what happens, no matter what deaths surround us, we can say and let it be our prayer, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And I would add in victory, because that's what we see in Revelation. Hannah's prayer is also informed not only with these truths that God is over life and death, and he's over all the in-between of human fortunes and positions, and not only does God bring personal salvation and not only does power inform her prayer, this is the third contour of Hannah's prayer that we can learn from is to pray aware of God's providence, aware of God's personal salvation, aware of God's power, and aware of God's providence, his, his, protective, his, his protective care, his divinely orchestrating events to, to care for us and to protect us. We can see in verse 7, Hannah sings out really in prayer. She just kind of explodes, exalting over those who are poor and rich and low and exalted. God controls the material and social life in all, of all of humanity. You know, that's good news for us because in a short time, any one of us can become poor or lowly. We need to know that God... The God that Hannah prayed to is the same God that we pray to. He is the one who's able to lift up. Look down at verse 8, if you will, please. Hannah reminds us that he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. God is the one who raises up the poor. He's the one who lifts up the needy. God upholds the very earth that we live upon. Do we have that awareness in our prayer? Let us approach God in faith, aware of that. He honors the poor. He gives them a seat with the princes. What does that remind you of? He makes them inherit a seat of honor. What does that remind you of? Well, we go over to the New Testament in Ephesians 2. Apostle Paul is writing to us in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, and he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, by the way, not our merit, not our strength, even when we were dead, completely unable, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He has power over life and death. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And now listen here the parallel in verse 6 of Ephesians 2. He says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Although we are still here in Christ, we need to be aware that in Christ we are already considered as raised up and made to sit with him, the Prince of Peace. 
In Christ, we are sure of our inheritance as sons and daughters of God. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why? Because God's in control over everything. And Hannah was aware of God's protection. Look in verse 9. She says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked he shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. There's that theme again. God's the one who guards and protects every step of his faithful ones. He keeps them walking in the light. That's the contrast that, that she's making there. The psalmist later in Psalm 121 He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Maybe he's reflecting back on Hannah's prayer. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Are you aware of these truths in your prayers? God guards and protects us. He never falls asleep. He doesn't get bored or weary of guarding and keeping us. He doesn't grow tired. By contrast, the wicked won't know where to walk is what that's saying. They're going to be in darkness. The, the, the faithful ones, God is going to keep the feet, guard the feet of so that they won't know where to walk and know where to step and every step of the way, God is going to lead us and guide us. But the, he says the, the wicked will be cut off in darkness. They won't know where to go. They don't, can't be confident that God is leading them. But it's not by our own might that we prevail, it's by his might that we prevail. Are we aware of his might? You know, no one makes it in life by his or her own ability. It's only by God guarding us can any of us stand. Along with these themes of God bringing the low, the proud, and raising up the lowly, this theme of not by might shall man prevail. We see that later. Lowly David, he's gonna be raised up and he's gonna prevail over the giant Goliath prevailing and he says in God's might and and he actually David quotes he says "Um, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts the same word that Hannah used in her prayer in chapter one the God of the armies of Israel and he approaches the mighty lowly David in the strength of God is that how we approach trusting in God's strength to overcome it's something all of us need to learn Are we aware we're dependent on him? Have you trusted? Maybe this morning you haven't trusted in God. Are you trusting in God alone through Christ Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone? Have you humbled yourselves before God? Maybe you have trusted in God, but maybe you need to humble yourself before God yet again. Maybe God is is saying, no, you've been trusting in me, so life's been difficult, you've been anxious, you've been fearful, things have been more difficult than they should have been, you've lost perspective, I want you to see your weakness so that in your weakness you might be strong in me. Maybe some of us need to humble ourselves before him in times of trouble, find rest in him alone when the storms of life rage. Do we look to God when we're buffeted on every side, when, you know, when trials buffet When we face our worst foes, whether that be illness or temptation or spiritual or physical adversaries, and then we see finally the fourth contour of Hannah's prayer, that this this picture of Hannah, we see the contours in her picture that we can learn from it is to pray aware of the prophetic. 
she, she gives a prophecy here based on, on God's character and nature. And really based in, in, in Deuteronomy, probably when God told of a, of a king, one day God would make provision for a king. And so she's aware this day has not yet come. She doesn't know her son will be the king maker, but she's looking to the king. She's looking forward prophetically. And she declares in verse 10 something. She says, all the enemies of the Lord will one day be broken to pieces. Are you aware of that? One day all these temporary enemies that you see, maybe the enemies of illness or death or joblessness, an illness, virus, weakness, all these enemies will be broken to pieces one day. Broken down are his adversaries. One day the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. No place will be outside of his reach. His authority as judge is going to extend to the ends of the earth. What does she mean when she says that, that he, on the, God's created the pillars and they set the earth on them? What he means is that he's the one who's in control over everything. Everything's going to be subjected to his rule and his final judgment. And then in the end, she says, God will give strength to his king. Now remember what that means. She said, one day God will exalt or lift up the horn of his anointed. Talk about prophetic. Anna didn't realize what she was saying, but she was prophetically praying that one day God will judge all things and in the end he will lift up his king. Now we know that God has lifted up his king. There's some irony in what was written on the cross of Jesus. Jesus, King of the Jews. And in his moment of absolute humiliation, he proved that in his weakness, in his utmost weakness, God was made strong. God's strength was revealed in the ultimate weakness. God's strong deliverance in his anointed one. And she's praying, one day God will, will give his anointed one might and dignity, his anointed. And by the way, that Hebrew word for anointed, it's Messiah. I'm not pronouncing it in Hebrew way, but it's Messiah. So it's the same word, anointed, Messiah, Christ. It's the same word. She was looking for God to raise up his king and his anointed one. What she did not see was that as one and the same. But her awareness of God framed really her prayer and framed her life. It's a knowledge and assurance that God is over all things. And one day, all things, all these temporary things, he might not relieve our suffering and difficulties. He might not give bounty in this life, but he will one day lift up not only our heads, but he will He will lift up and exalt his king who will rule supreme over all, who will put down all adversaries. All of his adversaries will be broken to pieces and everyone everywhere from every time and place and tongue and nation will be under his final judgment and we will be either judged by God or judged as already or be found as already judged in Christ through faith in God's true anointed king. There's only two options. God will judge the world. We'll either be judged by God 
or will be found as already having been judged in Christ. Jesus is the, the anointed one, the, trice, the, the Christ, the true anointed king, the rightful sovereign of all before whom every knee will bow and every tongue proclaim that he is Lord. And that's our greatest good, the answer to all of our prayers, really. That's far beyond our wildest expectations and imagination is that we would be in a place with our anointed king ruling and reigning supreme where there is no evil, where there's no sorrow, no suffering, no adversaries, and we will fully and ultimately find vindication and deliverance in him as our redeemer who will stand on the earth at last. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Isn't that a beautiful song? And she's done her prayer and we're left with this picture of this beautiful woman of faith, trusting in God, looking to God. And may her prayer, her song of prayer really inform us. Hannah's story, it confronts us. Stories are meant to do that, aren't they? They're meant to challenge us. That's how stories function. Stories are meant to make us take stock of ourselves, what we think, what we believe, what we pray. So the question for us as we close is how do we pray What do we pray? Do we pray both in desperation and exaltation? Do we pray with a view of who God is and ultimately where all things will end? Do we pray trusting that way? Or do we just pray a rote prayer or two, not really believing that God hears and responds? Let's be challenged by this. Let's not just pray formulaic prayers, not truly believing God is the Lord of hosts. Be encouraged by Hannah to pray personally with all our strength and our heart and our mouth, believing and trusting to God to hear us. Maybe we're facing challenging times or circumstances or relationships or weakness. Pray with all of our heart, all of our strength and believe and know that God hears and he will answer in his own will because he's holy, he's powerful, he's good, he has all knowledge. Are we also aware of and grateful to God for our every life and breath? Does that inform our perspective? And if we give continual thanks to God for his provision and care, I think that's going to transform not only how we pray, but our, our entire perspective on, on our outlook on life. I think we need that. I know we need that. Do we pray aware of his sovereign power and rule and reign? If so, it will affect your trust and rest in him and you will be freed from anxiety and worry and fear. Do we pray aware of the fact that all our strength and wealth comes from God, both acknowledging and depending upon him? Do we pray confident that God will ultimately reign and rule supreme, that one day Jesus will be exalted and we will receive our inheritance and be seated with him. Because we can be confident that's the case. One day, all who believe in him will have our horns, our, our strength lifted up, be exalted in him, and receive our full inheritance and dignity as his children. Amen. Good to the band come up as we pray. Let's stand, please. And pray together. Thank you, O God, Lord of hosts, maker of heaven and earth. God, you are not distant, but you look on our lowly estate. 
You look on our humble estate. You look on our weakness, God. And you are desirous as a good father to give us more than we ask for, Lord. All that we need, Lord, our sufficiency is found in you, God. I pray that you would lift up our eyes, that we might behold you, that we might look to you and have faith in you. You might see you as our redeemer who will one day stand victorious here on a, in a new earth. In your name we pray, amen.